1 Corinthians chapter 3, looking at verses 16 to 23 tonight. The title of the message is Building Crew or Wrecking Crew. Let me review for you guys, for anybody who didn't make it on Sunday, couldn't make it. Um, verses 9 through 15 is what we looked at on Sunday. We visited Paul, the Apostle Paul, in a construction zone. We took our, our hard hats, walked in on Paul in the construction zone because it says that God is building his church. And Paul compares the church to a building. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 here, Paul basically says, look, I was the foreman. I was the, he calls himself the master builder. He was the foreman who laid the foundation in Corinth. We talked about on Sunday, the church is not a physical building made of concrete, glass, brick, and mortar. But First Peter underlines the same thing that Paul is saying, which is that the church is a spiritual house. And it is built up of living stones. You guys are the living stones. Paul laid the foundation, which he says is Jesus Christ, and we are building on the foundation. This church, this building has been growing for 2,000 years. Um, look with me now at the end of verse 9. We'll kind of get a running start for it tonight. End of verse 9 says, You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul says, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how, how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. We saw we get to choose which materials we're going to use on the foundation that Paul has set. We get to use either what he calls gold, silver, and precious stones, which we, we found out on Sunday is God's wisdom, the hidden wisdom of God, or we can build the church out of wood, hay, and straw, stuff that is very easily obtained but goes up in a, in a fire like that. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, that is the day of the Lord, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. We looked at all that on Sunday. If you want to dig into that more, you can get the tape or the CD or go online. Tonight now, Paul is going to continue on with the theme that the church is God's special building project. We are his construction zone and... God we are God's special building project. Look at verse 16. Paul says very directly, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now the word you there is plural. The word is plural. Most of the time in our minds, we fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In chapter 6, Paul says you are the temple of God, and he's talking to individuals. But here he's still talking about the collective church. Paul is speaking to the church collectively. It is true that you and I are individually the temple of God. We know that. Paul's going to follow that through in chapter 6. But here Paul is speaking corporately to all of us. He's basically saying this. Do you not know that you guys 
when you come to church, when you're not at church, when you collectively do you not know that you are the very temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you collectively. The word temple there in verse 16 refers not to just the big building in Jerusalem that was called the temple, but specifically to the inner sanctuary, the most precious place called the Holy of Holies, right? Where God's presence was uh, recognized. It was the holies of, of Holies. It was where God's spirit dwelt. The word dwells there is oikos. It means house. In other words, he's saying, do you not realize that you collectively are God's house? You are where God lives. We made that point on Sunday. On Saturday, across the street, the room that we meet in on the, in the YMCA is an exercise room. But on Sunday, it's the very holy of holies. It's God's house because you are there. Paul says, don't you realize that when we come together, the spirit of the living, holy God dwells in our midst. In Matthew 18, Jesus said it this way. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the very midst of them. It's pretty amazing stuff. The God, that Jesus would be right here in our midst. That's why verse 17 reads this way. It says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The word defile there and the word destroy. You see those two words in verse 17? They're the exact same word in the Greek. They're pitherio. It means to corrupt, to destroy. Now, why were they translated differently? One defile and one destroy. I think the reason that they're translated differently is because it's impossible to truly destroy the church. Jesus said on this rock, he's talking about the, the, the uh, proclamation of him as Lord. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not possible to actually destroy the church. But the message is this. The message of verse 17 is this. If you do harm to God's church, to God's people, God will do harm to you. If you tear down God's church, God will tear you down. Again, on Sunday we saw that the church, you guys, are God's construction zone. God is right now building up his church. And I know some of you actually work in construction. I don't think I would be exaggerating to say that every construction zone, one of the things they have to worry about is vandals. When people are trying to build up, there are always people trying to defile, to destroy, to steal, to take away. There are those, even in the church, sadly, when they should be building up the church, become instead the wrecking crew. The title of the message tonight is Building Crew or Wrecking Crew. I found this uh, poem. It uh, was written by someone anonymously. It says, I saw them tearing a building down, a dozen men in a busy town. With a ho heave ho and a lusty yell, they swung the beam and the sidewall fell. I asked the foreman if these men were skilled. Are these men you hire when you have to build? He gave a laugh and said, no, indeed, common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what it took a builder a year to do. I thought to myself as I walked away, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder 
who works with care, measuring life with rule and square? Am I shaping my life to a well-made plan, patiently doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks the town content with the labor of tearing down? See, that's a great question. We should all ask ourselves, am I a builder or am I a wrecker? Am I on the building crew or am I on the wrecking crew? And there's a line in there that's very true. It's so much easier to tear down. You can easily wreck in a day or two what it takes a skilled builder years to do. We have a choice. Every day, every moment, we have a choice. Building crew, wrecking crew. The World Trade Center. 1,700 feet high, 110 stories high. It was 8.6 million square feet of floor space. They broke ground on this building on August 5th, 1966. When the World Trade Center Twin Towers were completed, the total cost was $900 million. And the ribbon-cutting ceremony was April 4th, 1973. Started in 1966 finished in 1973. Six and a half years, thousands of workers, $900 million to build. You know, on 9-11, it took two planes, 10 men, two hours to destroy. For the following eight and a half months, the World Trade Center cleanup And recovery continued 24 hours a day for eight and a half months just to clean it up. See, demolition is always a lot easier than building. And we have a choice. And this verse says, look, even though demolition might be easier, we have a choice. And this verse wants you to know, Paul wants us to know, you have a choice. You can join the wrecking crew, but it is a losing battle. You cannot ultimately win when you fight against God's church. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But even more directly, look at verse 17. He says, if anyone defiles, tries to bring down the temple of God, God's church, you, the living stones, God will destroy him. Point is this, if we ever set ourselves up as a wrecking ball, God becomes our Wrecking ball. If I ever set myself up trying to bring down someone in the church, God becomes my wrecking ball. This shows God's protective nature for his church. You guys get that? This is how much God loves his church. This is how much God loves you. Collectively. Us. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, he was probably the the most proficient wrecking ball there was at this point. Acts chapter 9, he is going wrecking from house to house, he's on the road to Damascus. He's looking for Christians that he can wreck, families that he can wreck. He is looking for people that he can imprison, kill. What happens? Jesus comes, knocks him to the ground. He's got his face in the dirt. And he's, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? That's how much God feels it when we try to bring down the church. The point is, again, you mess with God's church and you mess with God. 
Now, if you're a Christian, you can know that God will not destroy you eternally. If you're a Christian, it's not talking about eternal destruction. But God has been known to swing the wrecking ball this side of eternity. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to swindle the church and the wrecking ball came their way. Now, I don't have any reason to believe that they didn't go to heaven, but we know that God swung the wrecking ball at them immediately. Now, what are some of the ways that we can find ourselves on the wrong end of God's wrecking ball? Here, like if we were going to have a little uh, breakout session here, how to defile the temple of God, how to find yourself on the wrong end of God's wrecking ball. Here's one. If you're a worker, if you're someone who is uh, supposed to be doing the work of the ministry, a pastor, a leader, Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, if you're a worker, one thing that you can do to defile the temple is to neglect your duty. This is from the concordance on the Blue Letter Bible. It says, and under the word defile, it says, In the opinion of the Jews, the temple was corrupted or defiled when anyone defiled or in the slightest degree damaged anything in the temple or of its guardians when they neglected their duties. Do you hear that? If you're a guardian of the temple, if you're a guardian of the church, if a guardian of the temple didn't show up, use the utmost cares in the Jewish eyes, then the temple would be defiled. The application is for every worker, starting with me, in this temple. The application is we can defile the church simply by neglecting our duties. There's also, though, an application for your temple at home. The Bible says every husband here, you are a priest in your own home. Right? It's a temple. It's the place where God dwells. And part of our duties, husbands, as the priest, is to wash the holy vessels with the water of the word. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 talks about when husbands, um, he says, wash them as Jesus did when he washed his bride with the water of the word. The idea is, husbands, are we leading the way we should? We are to be leaders in our families when it comes to prayer, Bible study, Bible reading, Bible teaching, all that stuff. Many a very good, likable Christian husband has found their marriage a wreck. Wreck. Because they neglected their spiritual duties. So there's one way. Is those who are in guardian positions can neglect their duties. That's one way to defile the temple of God. Here's another way. To defile the temple of God... To find yourself on the wrong end of, the, of God's wrecking ball, here's a big way. Be divisive. Divide the church. Do your best to create factions in the church. That was exactly the problem in Corinth. Jesus was the one who first said, a house divided cannot stand. In Corinth, you guys know, if you've been with us for a while, they were dividing up under different teachers. There was a group said, I'm, I follow Paul. Another group, hey, I follow Apollos. Well, I'm a disciple of Cephas. They were dividing up over teachers, over their favorite teachers, and saying, I'm a disciple of this person. You can divide over a myriad of things. Even in a small church like ours, believe it or not, 
we have had opportunities for division. I am so thankful that none of the opportunities that have presented themselves have been carried very far. But there have been times when people have had problems with the way one thing or another is done or one decision is made. And they don't like the way things happen, maybe. And they try to gather support for their opinion. They call people and, or email people and say, this is what I think. What do you think? Trying to gather factions, trying to divide the church, making phone calls, writing emails, essentially basically to say, are you with me or are you against me? That is a quick way to defile the church. Here's another thing that defiles the church. Gossip. Gossip defiles a church. It, again, creates an instant division between the gossiper, the one who is speaking, and the one who's being gossiped about, of course. There's a division. But again, it also, when the gossiper goes to someone, if, the, if someone comes to me and they want to gossip, I have to make a decision. Okay, am I going to be on your side by listening to you, or am I going to be on the other side by not listening to you? It creates division. Instant division and a house divided cannot stand. That's another way to divide, to defile a church. And here it says, if you defile God's church, he will destroy you. It's another way to find yourself on the end of the, the wrong end of the wrecking ball. Why again is all this true? Why is God so, I mean, this seems over the top almost, doesn't it? Why is God so passionate? Because God loves his church. Because God loves you. Verse 17, the end of it says, For the temple of God, and you've got to remember, he says you are the temple. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is amazing that this statement would even be made about us. It says you are the temple of God and you are holy. How many people feel holy right now? The word holy is hagios. It means set apart, beloved, especially loved. It means exciting, reverence, venerable, sacred. It means pure, pure from carnality, chaste, modest, pure from every fault, immaculate, clean. I know it's hard to imagine, but when he looks at us, as he looks at us tonight, he sees us unblemished, pure, chaste, immaculate, clean, innocent, like a bride wearing pure white. Now, looking at me, that's really hard to imagine. Looking at you guys, it's impossible to imagine. No, I'm kidding. But it's true. It's exactly what he sees. He sees a pure, chaste, immaculate, innocent bride washed in the blood of Jesus, clothed in white. And if someone tries to defile his precious bride, he pulls no punches. Now, if you had to put one finger on what it was that was defiling the Corinthian church, in a nutshell, what's, what's the root cause? It was pride. We've seen it before. Verse 18, that's why Paul says, Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Basically, in today's vernacular, Paul says, look, if you think you're a hot shot, if you're 
really think you've got it together in today's world's wisdom, you are kidding yourself. Paul says, if you think you're wise in this age, in this world's philosophies, then you are deceiving yourself. And you may even deceive others. But you don't fool God. Right? It was Abraham Lincoln that said, you can fool all of the people some of the time. Some of the people all the time. But you can't fool all of the people all the time. And I would add, you can't fool God ever. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's a quote from Job 5.13. It's the picture here, in my mind, of a clever hunter setting a clever trap. The, the wire is tripped, and it's the hunter that finds himself trapped. Job 5, 12, 13, and 14 in the New Living Translation reads this way. It says, He frustrates the plans of the schemers, so the work of their hands will not succeed. He traps the wise in their own cleverness, so their cunning schemes are thwarted. They find it is darkness in the daytime, and they grope at noon as if it were night. How many people have ever tried ever try to catch stuff when you were a kid? You know, catch rabbits or whatever. I used to try to catch rabbits with a box and the carrot and the string and the, the stick. Lisa can't believe it because I'm like never outside, but I did. I used to try to catch that. I never caught a rabbit. I caught plenty of bug bites, though. I imagine, and with this illustration, I imagine someone with his finger on the string, and when he pulls it, it's suddenly dark. God has his own huge box and his own string, and he catches the wise in their craftiness, it says. This was uh, online just this afternoon. It says, uh, this was from Berlin. A German retiree who wired up a high-voltage cable to try to wipe out the moles digging up his garden killed himself instead. Police said Thursday... You Werner, a uh, police spokesman in Stralsund, north of Berlin, said the 63-year-old retired construction foreman was found dead in the garden of his weekend house in Zinx next to a 380-volt cable and metal spikes rammed into the ground. The moles survived. <laughs> Werner said, noting the voltage was enough to run a cement mixer or heavy-duty power saw, it was in any event an unorthodox method to try to get rid of the moles. Now, some people might look at the church and think we're just vermin, just pests, nuisance. But just try to kill us, just try to put us out and watch what happens. Look out. No doubt many of you, maybe all of you, heard about the guy who built a more than a million dollars from a Calvary Chapel over in Merritt Island. It hit the news with, within the last month. Actually, it was something that he did over eight years and it was uh, discovered at least six months, eight months ago. But it hit the news just recently. Apparently, this guy was very crafty. He had done work with Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. If you guys know that church, it's huge. He had a great reputation. He'd done work with many churches. He had helped do audits for churches. He knew all the tricks, and he used several of them. I actually got to hear Pastor Malcolm give a report um, just a, a, about a week before this hit the press, 
which was, again was probably about five or six months after he had learned. So he'd had time to adjust, you know, and deal with it. For eight years, this guy got away with it. He, he knew every trick in the book, and he used several of them at a time. But now, this guy is in jail. He's in a jail cell awaiting trial. He tried to defile the church, and his life is destroyed. I mean, no family life, no, fam- no life with, with his family. All the stuff that he built, I don't know how much of that can be taken away, but this guy's a wreck. He has been hit by the wrecking ball. I got to hear Pastor Malcolm just, again, about a week before this broke, and I got to hear him speak about the whole ordeal from his perspective. What he said was, well, you know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate because now the church has to deal with it again, but we've actually put this behind us. He says, we, we knew about this six, eight months ago. We, we reported it to the authorities, and just now uh, they're getting around to doing the arresting and all that stuff. But his point was that we have moved on. The church had moved on. This is so cool. In the same sentence, he was saying, we got our radio station. We've been praying for a radio station for years and years and years. And he said, finally, just a few weeks ago, he said, I, I drove and uh, was listening to see how far our radio would, would deliver. And he's like, I kept driving, I kept driving. I couldn't believe how much uh, coverage we had. The, the point was that God was still blessing this church. God was doing great things. Calvary Chapel, Merritt Island, they ministered to millions of people in Kenya because of a radio program that they are uh, fostering, that they are making sure it happens. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. God's church will continue to succeed. But the one who defiles God's church, God will deal with. Verse 20, Paul says, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. That's from Psalm 94. Verse 11 uh, of Psalm 94 says, The Lord knows the thoughts of a man that they are futile. The word futile there is devoid of force or devoid of truth, devoid of success, of results, useless, of no purpose. Verse 20 basically says that the Lord knows the the thoughts and the intents of, of every man, even the wisest man you can imagine. And he looks at it and he goes, that's nothing new to me. It's nothing impressive to me. We mentioned this a couple Thursdays ago. The Lord didn't hear Einstein's theory of relativity and go, whoa, that's good. It's like, whoa, that's, we should do lunch. You know, you can tell me some things. The Lord never did that. He didn't even say, nice job, Albert. That's really impressive. It was the thoughts of even the smartest man who's ever lived, anyone who's ever put on a lab coat, nothing. It's nothing. It's a vapor to God. That's why verse 21 says, Therefore, let no one boast in men. This is Paul's whole point. He's spending three chapters here to basically say, Why are you guys saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas? It's like, why in the world would you boast in men? Boasting in men, thinking that you're wise, thinking that that gives you some kind of celebrity, some kind of badge, what that does is divide the church and it puts you on the wrong end of God's wrecking ball. Well, what in the world do we do then? Look back at verse 18 and you see the, uh, the uh, remedy. Verse 18, it says, If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him 
become a fool, that he may become wise. The word fool there, again, we've seen it before, is moros, same place we get moron. If you think you're wise, become a moron. Some of you are thinking, okay, Doug's got that one down. Paul says if, you, if the house that you're building, the life that you're building is in your own power, because of your own prowess, because of your own wisdom, Paul says the first thing to do is tear that thing down. When the World Trade Center was first built, there was a controversy way back in 1966 because they had to tear down 13 square blocks, and some of it was historic. But they had to. If they wanted to build this thing, they had to tear this stuff down. They had to raise it flat. And when it came down on 9-11, again, it, they took eight and a half months to clean it up. It had to be raised, R-A-Z-E-D, before it could be raised, R-A-I-S-E-D. It had to be raised before it could be rebuilt. Back, with, back up with me to chapter 1. If, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Foolish, that's the word moron. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing, to raise, R-A-Z-E. To bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You hear what I'm saying? Every good building project starts with tearing down. God uses the foolish, the morons, to bring down the wise. That he might take that which is now humble, he brings them down, that he might take that which is now humble and make them truly wise. That's why Paul says, look, if you think you're smart, if you think you're wise, the smartest thing you can do is to tear that down. And let God give you real wisdom. Proverbs 3, verse 34, James 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, all say this same thing, which is this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We even saw this thing illustrated in this chapter. This was one of those kind of aha moments I had going through this chapter. The idea that God... that when things are high and then they're brought down, that the, then they are raised up again. Look at, look at the progression that Paul takes himself through in this chapter. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is trying to convince them that he's not a legend. He's basically saying, look, you guys are trying, treating us like celebrities here, like we're something important. And he says in verse 5, look how he takes himself down. Verse 5, he says, we were ministers. The word minister there, we talked about last week, means errand boy. Paul says, we were just God's errand boys, me and Apollos. And then look at the progression now in verse 9. He calls himself a co-laborer with God Almighty. That's a pretty big promotion from errand boy. Paul was a legend. He said, no, I'm not a legend. I'm an errand boy. Suddenly, he is working alongside of God Almighty. Then look at verse 10. Paul says, like a master builder, like a foreman, like the, the chief of a whole huge construction site. Paul says, yeah, that was my job. Because of the grace of God, God gave me that job. Do you see the progression? Is Paul a legend? No, I'm just an errand boy. But what happens? Even throughout this chapter, we see God 
taking that which is lowly and making it mighty. Paul made himself an errand boy for God and God made Paul an expert, a master wise builder, a co-laborer. Maybe tonight you feel like you've been on the wrong end of God's wrecking ball. Maybe things aren't going so great and you feel like you're just about as flat as you can be. Could it be that God is raising, R-A-Z-I-N-G, the structure that you're building, that he might build on that spot that which will last, that which he will build. Lisa and I noticed that phenomenon all over. We noticed it in Winter Park years ago when we used to drive through there to go to church. I think it's happening in outdoor. People will buy land just to raise it and put up a better, better, bigger, nicer house. It's because land is so so valuable, right? It happens all over. They raise it, R-A-Z-E, so that they can raise something much more valuable. Is that what could be happening with you? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 31 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. I wonder how much effort we would save God and heartache we would save ourselves if we would raise ourselves, R-A-Z-E, so he wouldn't have to push us down so that he could bring us up. Jesus even said, he said, when, when you go to visit someone, you go to visit their house, don't take the best seat. Don't presume that you're the best, smartest guy there. He says, no, take the lowly seat and let someone else say, hey, what are you doing there? You should be up here. He said, let another promote you. That's the point here. Paul says, don't boast in men. Certainly don't boast in your own abilities. He says, whenever you do those things, you are cheating yourself. Because look at verse 22. Paul will now describe in verse 22 the amazing amenities that are in the house that God builds. When we don't build it ourselves, when we let God build it, look what he says here in verse 22. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. I don't know if you see what he's saying here, but again, they were trying, they were dividing into factions. Paul's like. You guys are crazy to think that you boast about, well, I'm a student of Paul's. Well, I'm a disciple of Apollos. Paul says, when you do that, you're actually cheating yourself. You're actually narrowing the things that you can boast about because he says, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, the teacher Paul is yours. Paul says to them, the teacher Apollos is yours. He's here for your benefit. The teacher Cephas is here for you, for your benefit. I experience this all the time now with my iPod. John Corson is mine. Bob Coy is mine. Pastor Gib Allen is mine. I can listen to all these guys and they, were, they are teaching me. I'm not saying, oh, well, I am theirs. I don't belong to them. I belong to Jesus. But they all belong to me. Paul goes on and he says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty big. That's a pretty big amenity in this house that God is building. 
the world is yours. Then he says, or life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life more abundantly. When we have Jesus, we have the whole world. We have life. We are co-heirs. We are joint heirs with him. And he came that we might have this abundant life. And Paul says, why would you brag about being a student of mine? Then it says, all things are yours, whether the Paul or Paulus, Cephas, the world, life, or what? Death. That doesn't sound like much of a perk. <laughs> Death is yours. Woohoo! But think about it. See, death for the world, before, before you were a Christian, death was a really hard master that was coming to take something away from you, to make life really bad for you. Now, because you're saved, death is actually your servant. Death actually comes and it brings really good things to you. For you, death is a servant. Before you were saved, death was your cruel master. That's amazing. All things are yours, Paul says. He says things present are yours. Everything that's happening to you presently is for your benefit from your Father. Everything that's going to happen to you in the future, he says the future is yours. Right? Things present and things to come. All things are for you. We are amazingly blessed children of the Father. Why would we boast in anything less than this amazing thing that he's given us? And then finally, verse 23 says, and you belong to Christ. All things are mine and I belong to Christ. It says, and Christ is God's. These are amazing big things to think about. <laughs> Only way I can think of to, to wrap it up quickly. Whenever I see this verse, I think of the plastic eggs. <laughs> plastic eggs inside an egg. You know what I'm talking about? And like the, the littlest one has a prize in it. All of this is mine. I'm the little egg. But all of this is mine. And I am in Christ. I belong to Jesus. I am securely in him. And Christ is in God. How amazingly secure is all of this wonderful stuff that God has for us. Christ is firmly and securely seated in God, and I am firmly and securely seated in Christ. And so are you, because he loves you. You are his church. You are his wonderful building project.